electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with Julia Borston and Frank Paul. And Carl and John are still off. Today we are discussing the tech reckoning. Streamers are shifting their focus amid recession concerns. We'll cover the stocks set to benefit. Plus, Tesla continues to be a battleground stock, down almost 40% for just the month of December. But it is rebounding strongly today. So is the time to buy the dip. Plus, we have exclusive CNBC data on the fintech sector, pointing to more volatility in the new year. We will discuss how to play it. And is there more cybersecurity opportunity ahead? We have the 2023 sector playbook, Julia, as the Nasdaq is off to a very strong start to the session. That's right, Dean. We're going to start today's feed with streaming. 2022 has been a rough year for the media and streaming giants, and now there is growing concern about the impact of a recession. Now, year to date, Netflix shares are down about 55 percent. Disney and Paramount both about 45 percent, while Comcast shares are down over 30 percent. Now, this despite a rebound that you see there in those Netflix shares over the last six months. Actually, in the last six months, Netflix led the thing. Now, going into 2023, there's a focus on on average revenue per user among these streaming services and profitability. That has replaced a chase for subscriber gains with ballooning content spend. Some big fears on the horizon. Morgan Stanley warns that streaming growth is slow ca- slowing. Forecasting 2023 industry net additions will be at roughly half the 2021 pace, projecting consolidation of companies and services and also cost rationalization. Nita mourns that Netflix's peak subscribers may be behind it because churn is rising for all streaming platforms. So media companies are hoping to stem that churn with lower cost ad supported options like those that Netflix and Disney Plus recently launched or with free ad supported channels. They're nicknamed fast channels such as Pluto TV and the Roku channel or Tubi, which is owned by Fox. Some of my sources are asking when big streamers like Netflix or Disney Plus might launch their own free ad-supported versions. An original morning consult survey conducted for CNBC found that about half of Americans are interested in switching their streaming subscriptions to lower-cost ad-supported options, with millennials the most interested in those discounted options. Morning Consult also found in this poll that the majority of consumers, they're expecting to spend the same amount on buying and renting movies at home as they spent this year. So we'll have to see how all of that might change as, uh, as consumers' pocketbooks tighten up. You know, it is hard to go back, Julia. Uh, Once you got used to no ads, it's tough to move down. But, you know, many Americans may be faced with that choice next year, especially in an inflationary environment, a potential recession. Um, I wonder, though, we've had this discussion a lot over the last few months as these these streaming platforms look to profitability, Julia. Um, There's this idea that maybe original programming, original content um, may ease, but it feels like sports rights are picking up the baton, right? I was away when that $2 billion a year, reportedly $2 billion a year um, NFL ticket for YouTube happened. Do you think that that's set to continue? 
Well, look, this sports rights are always going to be valuable. The question is, are they going to remain as valuable if they um, are if we see overall viewership decline? So the NFL ratings have been pretty good this year, um, you know, and, and they, we certainly see that the NFL is sort of the, the crown jewel of sports rights, the, the most highest rated content on television. Um, the next big round of sports rights negotiations will be about the NBA. So I do think we're going to see increasing value in those sports rights, mostly because they're just more buyers in the market. But I think that we'll also see this question of how do you uh, allocate investment in original content. Frank, um, I know we've been talking a lot about the movie business offline, and there's this question of whether or not there's going to maybe be a longer window of how long you leave movies in theaters to try to encourage people to leave the house and get to see movies um, rather than just staying at home and watching stuff on Netflix. You know, Julia, exactly right. I mean, I think Deirdre just took the words out of my mouth. I was going to ask you about that NBA deal coming up in 2025. There's some reports out there that it could be uh, a 50 to 75 billion deal total, but a $1 billion package just for streaming that Amazon and Apple are looking at. The NBA has a younger demographic than all the other sports leagues, um, an under 35 demographic. So I know NFL is the crown jewel, but could that potentially be more valuable, more games, younger demographic, and just also more social media ability, if I can just coin that phrase. I think NBA Twitter is a lot bigger than NFL Twitter. Yeah, I mean, look, and I'll, I'll leave Twitter to the side for now, um, Frank, just because that's such a complicated conversation. But I do think it's not just about these rights, but how you slice and dice them, how you split them up. Will we see ESPN move some of its crown jewel um, streaming uh, uh, TV rights over to streaming? So I think that's going to be all in play as viewership trends shift as well. So as streaming names prepare for recession headwinds, our next guest sees it as a buying opportunity, naming Disney and Netflix among his top picks for the coming year. Joining us now, Mark Asset Management CEO Morris. Mark, Morris, thanks so much for joining us today. I have so many questions for you, but I want to start off with this question of why Disney and Netflix? How much of the fact that they're your top picks is about the fact that they have these new lower cost ad supported versions? I think the real question is, both these companies know what business they're in. They're not in the streaming business. They're in the entertainment business. And I think, uh, sorry. Well, that's, at least we know what your favorite movie is. That's the Star Wars rank, too. Yeah, we, yeah. we, we, know, you're, we know what you're watching. Yeah, we, we know. I am, I'm definitely watching, and um, Apple's a great company. <laughs> okay. I think they both they know they're in it. The last time that Reed Hastings was interviewed, uh, at Andrew Sorkin's conference, he said he was in the entertainment business. He understands that. And it's just a question of how you get people to spend their dollars on entertainment. They can do it directly by subscription. They can do it indirectly by being, by being willing to watch advertising. And somebody's selling them something and they're giving some of their time up for that. I think both of these entities have got the diversity of product, a range of product, and they've got the management now Disney has the management now that I think understand that they're in the business of entertainment and understand they're in the business of developing an audience and in the business of de developing great relations with the producers of that entertainment. And I think you touched on it. So, uh, but, uh, but I guess more big picture, though, if you're if you're bullish on, on Disney and Netflix, what about some of these other players? I mean, we were just looking at the short interest for Paramount, massive short interest from Paramount, as well as for Roku. What's your take on some of these other players? And do you think we'll see consolidation? Uh, I can't begin to guess. I think there should be consolidation because most of these other players don't have the two things that Disney and Netflix have which is diversity of product and size of audience. 
You know, Disney's got the ability to sell entertainment around the world, and they can do it directly by producing it, and they can do it indirectly by entertaining people at their parks. Uh, and I think that's fabulous. Uh, I think Netflix has got a range of product and smart people running the company. And one of the problems all these other businesses have is not the quality of the management, but the size of their audience and their ability to monetize that audience. You know, Comcast is a great company, but their entertainment division isn't nearly as big or as diverse or has as much to offer as either Disney or Netflix. And it's one of the better ones. As you get to some of those other names, uh, Paramount's got some great product, smart people, but CBS is producing in a manner where it's going to be losing audience. People right. prefer streaming as an entertainment option, and that, that's an issue they have to address. Will there be consolidation? There should be, but I can't speculate. So, Morris, when you talk about business, um, the business being entertainment, not necessarily streaming, it makes me think of things beyond the screen, right. like you know, theme parks, merchandise, video games. These are all things that you know, people at one point thought Netflix would move into, and it has in some of those cases, though very slowly and in small ways. Has it missed that opportunity? Can Netflix still do that in a recessionary environment? Does it need to? Maybe. I'm, I'm not counting on that. I'm not counting on that, Julia. I think I, I say that's a definite maybe if the people are smart. You know, I think take two is there. You know, and if there's an NBA contract coming up in 2025 and it's uh, the product, meaning the NBA, is going to end up being streamed around the world, but they play the NBA in China. That's still open to them. Uh, what you can do with a, with a game like NBA 2K then is a lot more than what you can do with it now. So I think having the product, the ability to produce that entertainment product is, is a unique skill. I think that's why Microsoft wants to buy Activision. I think that's why it makes sense. So Morris, Frank Holland here. So quick question, I wanted to touch back on the stocks, especially Meta and Alphabet. You say both of them are cheap right now, both of them trading at just about 17 times forward earnings, the NASDAQ trading at about 21 times forward earnings. So on paper, I guess they are cheap, but have you factored in this ad spending slowdown that so many people are forecasting? I look at insider intelligence and other data sources, they say ad spending increased 8% this year. It's only gonna increase 4% this year, and that's not factoring in any real economic downturn. We haven't seen signs of that just yet. So if ad spending doesn't show the growth, that 4% growth that we're expecting, are these stocks still cheap? When you look at especially oh, Alphabet, it gets about 80% of revenue from yes. ads, Meta almost all revenue from okay. ads. Okay, the short answer is yes. There was a great graph in today's journal, and one of the heard on the street columns, which shows what's happened to Meta's multiple. Meta is a very profitable business. It's got a phenomenal audience size with things like Instagram. And nobody ever said that Mark Zuckerberg wasn't brilliant, which he is. He's, they made mistakes. They, they lost share of audience to TikTok, and that's just a fact. But they've got tons of audience. And I think what's going to happen this year is, and I, I'm trying, not trying to avoid the answering your question, Frank, is the utilization of artificial intelligence on a much more widespread manner to uh, run businesses better, more effectively, and serve customers better. And I think that um, maybe there'll be an ad slowdown. If there's a recession, I'd rather own these businesses through a recession than most businesses. And now they're so, cheap. Talking yeah. about AI is going to juice the ad business? 
it's not going to juice the ad business. If things slow down, they slow down. But you still make a lot of money selling ads. And then when things pick up, you make a lot more money. And in between, they've got the balance sheets that carry yeah. them in between. They've got low multiples. I'm, buying, I'm getting value. I'm getting value yeah. and growth at a huge discount. So- So, Morris, we're going to continue the conversation about Meta and Apple. So, Morris, stay with us. But let's get over to the topic of the metaverse and whether the hype is over or if there's more opportunity to come in the new year. Our Steve Kovac joins us with more. Steve? Hey there, Julia. Yeah, let's break down how the year went for the metaverse. And you have to start with meta, of course, because that's the poster child for this whole concept. Just a year ago, Mark Zuckerberg bet the entire company on the metaverse. Today, well, shares are down about 65% on the year, in part because investors are unhappy with the tens of billions of dollars lost so far, trying to build an experiment that may not pay off for a decade if it ever pays off at all. This summer, the internet had a good chuckle over how bad meta's vision for the metaverse actually looks. Remember, guys, Zuckerberg's avatar selfie? That is how video games look 20 years ago. By the way, there are signs consumer interest is falling, too. MPD Group tells CNBC spending on VR headsets fell 2% this year to a little over a billion dollars. Now, to put that in perspective, Apple sells about $200 billion worth of iPhones every year, so a very tiny market. This, despite market leader Meta launching a new $1,500 headset called the Meta Quest Pro. That debuted to poor reviews, though we'll have to wait until Meta reports earnings to get an idea how well it actually sold. But the industry is not giving up. In February, Sony will start selling its new VR rig for the PlayStation 5. That will obviously be focused entirely on gaming, though. It's really Apple everyone's looking at. It's finally expected to enter the space with that long-rumored augmented reality headset at the end of the year. Apple's challenge, though, will be showing a compelling use case for the technology that rivals haven't been able to prove so far. But if that doesn't happen, the metaverse concept may end before it can actually take off, guys. Julia? Steve, thanks so much. Morris, Meta is one of your topics for 2023, but I want to ask you about those numbers that Steve Kovac just brought us, this idea that the overall market for VR headsets actually shrank this year. How concerned are you about Meta's investment in the metaverse, and how does that play into your bull case for the stock? Right now, I'm paying nothing for it. Right now, I'm paying a low multiple for an advertising-driven business with a huge audience that everybody that I know still uses. So if it works, I get it for nothing. And if it doesn't work, well, I still get it. an awful lot of value and a great business. I think most of the money they're spending is on, quote, on the metaverse, but it's on the development of artificial intelligence technology to help them serve their audience a lot better, both in terms of getting people to use their products more. And then I think this help them sell things to those people in a, in a more targeted fashion. I think that's really smart. I think they're trying to do that right now with WhatsApp. WhatsApp has, has generated very little revenue for the company so far and has more than a billion users around the world. So let's see what happens there. Okay, so Morris, it sounds like you like Meta despite the metaverse. Um, are you bullish or bearish on the whole concept? Do you think that there is a company that could bring it to the mainstream, like potentially Apple? Absolutely. I think all the leading companies over time will take this concept and turn it into useful technology and useful products. I mean, uh, NVIDIA talked about the Omniverse and business using that technology to develop products more efficiently, more quickly and with more value. You know, designing a product in in the Omniverse can give you uh, absolute performance 
measurements well before you put that product together and, and actually build it, whether it's a plane or a machine or a robot. Uh, so I think, yeah, this, this whole idea, you're talking about a three-dimensional, artificially intelligence-driven internet. I mean, I'm an old Star Trek fan, and you remember the room they went into? They were in the metaverse. They had all these visualized computer images that looked like people, acted like people, and performed like people. It's going to take a long time, but it's going to happen. In between, I think you want to own some great businesses that are going to make more money when the economy gets better. Morris, I feel to, like that's, keep it simple. The, the Star Trek version, I, I feel like, was more uh, holograms, but uh, more than anyone wearing those VR headsets. But I, I'm very curious okay. to see how it all plays out. And I'm going to be at CES exploring some of the new VR technology next week. Morris, Mark, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks, and Julia. Julia. I'm really interested in learning what you learned. Thank you. <laughs> It's not either or for Morris. He likes Star Wars and Star Trek, something we learned today. Uh, coming up, Tesla's tough year, a check on fintech. And this is a cybersecurity playbook. NASDAQ is up two and one-third of a percent. Tech check is just getting started. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Strong session for the NASDAQ, which is currently up nearly 2.5%. Here are the leaders on the NASDAQ 100 Tesla um, clawing back some ground from heavy losses this month and over the last few months and then last year. We've also got some other EV makers making this list like Rivian and Lucid and Netflix up nearly five and a half percent. Frank. All right, time now for a gut check on Tesla. Shares up more than eight percent this morning, continuing yesterday's rally. But with December still set to close out the stock's worst year on record, what will it take to right this ship in 2023? Let's bring in former Ford CEO Mark Field, senior advisor at TPG. Mark, great to have you here. Happy holidays. Hey, Frank. All right, let's start off a little bit of news, Mark. I mean, some news out today. Elon Musk sent a letter to employees saying, don't worry about the stock market craziness, asking for a little help to deliver cars before year end. The last one's really caught my ear. He said to demonstrate continued excellence going forward. So my question for you is, is it the quality of those Tesla vehicles, especially in the consumer side? Is that what's been pushing the stock higher? Well, I think, you know, overall, there's a large, as you know, a large retail component of Tesla stock. And you've seen literally over the last uh, month or so, a lot of retail buyers uh, buying into the stock. You know, I think at the end of the day, when you look at <clears throat> when you look at Tesla's performance and the reasons that the stock's been down, yes, you have that bucket of is is Alon distracted with his focus on uh, on Twitter? But then there's the other bucket that says, you know, they're starting to experience potentially for the first time in their in their young company's life uh, demand problem because you have established automakers that are bringing in new models. You have the economy slowing uh, right now. You can literally get on a website and order a Tesla and have one in a few days. They've they've actually doubled the incentives offering to consumers to take a vehicle by the end of the year. So, you know, when you look at that, 
you know, this company has been, you know, valued by investors as a battery, a software and technology company. That plus their growth has really, you know, given them a very high multiple. I think now investors are waking up and saying, hey, you know, they are also a car company and uh, have to compete <laughs> in a slowing economy. All right, so you're a former Big 3 CEO. I think you have a great take on this whole landscape of the area. You mentioned incentives. So coming up next year, starting in January, the Tesla Model Y and Model 3 will be eligible for tax credits from the Inflation Reduction Act. The Model Y and Model 3 are already about half of the consumer EV market. So is this a cure for all of Tesla's problems, these EV credits and also higher gas prices, which we're all expecting next year? Well, no, I don't think it's a cure-all for a couple of reasons. One is if you look at Tesla plus the other automakers that are selling EVs, They've taken significant price increases over the past nine months because you're seeing some of the input costs like cobalt, lithium, nickel, things of that nature really spike up. And literally, if you look at uh, some of Tesla's price increases, it's negated the incentive that they're going to be eligible for next year. That being said, they are going to be eligible for it versus some others. Uh, but, but overall, they're going to have to continue to come out with, with great product, but continue to drive efficiencies because you know, ultimately they have to drive continued demand for their products, and you're seeing that slow a bit, so it's gonna ask, it raise the question, are they gonna have to do some marketing at some point, which they've had literally zero costs on that, but they're gonna have to continue to drive the quality of their vehicles, which you know have had some issues and recalls. They're the number two uh, uh, volume manufacturer of recalls uh, this year. So they have some issues to do as they continue to grow and scale. Mark, I want to ask you a little bit about Tesla management and Elon Musk. There was an article out from The Verge this morning. The headline was, The Vibes Are Off at Tesla, talking about layoffs, losses, delays, Twitter chaos, and of course, the stock saying the stock is in free fall, though it is up pretty dramatically this morning. How concerned would you be about Elon Musk being distracted in that litany of issues? Well, Julie, when you, when you look at running a car company, it is a 24-7 endeavor. And, uh, you know, when you when you look at Elon and, and the the other balls he has in his air in the air, including Twitter, uh, you got to ask yourself when he's competing against other automakers who their CEOs are 100 percent focused on the business. You know, are they getting the best out of that? I think within the organization, you know, for their people, listen, they're they they've, well, many of them come to work at Tesla because of Elon. Uh, so that will still be there as he's in charge of the business. But he's facing some mundane problems that, you know, all the other automakers face around. You have to right size the business when the top line gets tough during an economic slowdown. And he's going to have to look at, you know, retaining his best workers, because if you look at the stock performance, a lot of the execs, their compensation is in equity. And with the performance this year, a lot of those execs are probably looking at their their equity yeah. uh, compensation and saying, hmm. Mark, good morning. It's your job. You know, I don't doubt that leading a car company or any company for that matter is a 24-7 job, uh, maybe for not a few select people like Elon Musk. But if 2023 is really the year the real competition comes online, uh, could one argue that Tesla is really coming from a position of strength and it has something that other players, both legacy and new, don't have, and that is vertical integration. Um, Elon Musk is able to do things like manufacture their own batteries, um, sell directly to the consumer, do things like we saw during the pandemic, change the chip makeup so that they don't need necessarily the highest end ones. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. They do have a lot of advantages. Listen, everybody's focusing on the stock performance right now and, you know, whispers of, of demand issues. 
But as I mentioned earlier, at the heart, they're a battery a software and technology company, and they've done a terrific job of vertically integrating. Uh, they get pretty good prices on the elements that go into the batteries. They know how to scale, and that's a real big advantage. They have scaled over the last couple of years. Some of the automakers like GM, they're going to be introducing a lot of uh, product this year. They have to get up that ramp-up curve in their plants to be able to, A, get the product out, but B, also work those cost efficiencies and those scale efficiencies over time, of which Tesla has done a very good job at, and they have very good battery technology because they've been focusing on this for quite some time. All right, Mark Fields, former Ford CEO, thank you very much for being here. Julia. All right, thank you, guys. Yeah, and those Tesla shares are up 8% today, though still down 65% year-to-date. Tech Check is back after this quick break. Ring in the new year by joining CNBC Pro. Invest like a pro in 2023 with a special year-end offer. Go to CNBC.com slash pro new year or scan this code now. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Quintessa Brewer. Here's your CNBC News update this hour. Southwest shares on the rise this morning, even as the airline canceled about 60% of its flights today. Southwest says it could have its full schedule restored tomorrow, just in time for the flood of New Year's travelers. The stock is up 3% today, still down 8% this week. Jobless claims ticked up the last weekly report of the year. Claims rose to 225,000. That's a level that still indicates a tight labor market because it's really only slightly above claim figures going into the pandemic. And crude oil is down more than a percent, with traders concerned about China's COVID surge affecting energy demand. However, the losses have eased as the dollar has weakened against other major currencies. Deirdre, I'll send it back to you. Contessa Brewer, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. One article getting a lot of traction on CNBC.com this morning is from our own Hugh Son, titled The Fintech Reckoning is Upon Us. Uh, Hugh, some pretty amazing stats, such as 20% of all VC dollars last year went into fintech. Um, easy money, it felt like any company with an idea, whether that was really a platform or just sort of a product, got funded. What does that mean going forward next year? If this reckoning really is upon us, does the target change, does the model change, instead of being a one stop shop is sort of every fintech wanted to be do are they more open to things like acquisitions hey Deirdre, great to be with you uh, i mean i would say look after the party comes the hangover and uh of all the vcs founders and investment bankers i spoke to they believe that this reckoning that this series of mass consolidation of companies needing to shut down or to sell themselves is going to happen within six nine perhaps 12 months um, and so I, I think it has a lot of ramifications. Uh, you're seeing all these companies going into their back end and saying, how can we extend runway? How can we um, actually become more profitable? The problem with them uh, during the party days is that they had poor unit economics. Basically, it was uh, let's growth hack our way into a business. Let's use marketing and purchase users, uh, not unlike rideshare companies a few years ago, 
uh, and get to scale and then figure out how to make money from them. Uh, and so now that the cost of money is no longer zero, uh, you're seeing that they uh, basically don't have a lot of uh, you know pathways to profitability, and you're seeing them basically uh, look at uh, a future of, uh, of, uh, of having to shut down. Yeah, speaking of cost of money being zero, how much of this no longer being zero, how much of this reckoning is really about interest rates and the fact that these companies' business models were built um, on low interest rates? Well, yeah, you know, some of the VCs I spoke to were flabbergasted that, you know, uh, when they uh, have the time to do due diligence with their uh, possible, you know, uh, investment cases that, you know, the people who founded these companies, they 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 lived uh, and they grew up basically during the summertime of, of free money and had no conception of what it would be like to have a, a true cost of capital. And so when you see you see the ramifications in fintech, which obviously has. Uh, you know, the first part of that is finance. Uh, you know, it, it's pretty uh, it's pretty dramatic. Uh, you know, first of all, what happens to your cost of capital if you lend money to, to uh, marginal borrowers? What happens to uh, your loss rate when uh, for the first time they start to have delinquencies and actually uh, default on their loans? Um, so you've got a firm up on, on the screen. Look, I mean, that's down uh, 80, 90 percent. And that's not as bad as even as some of these other companies uh, mm -hmm. that are that are spacked uh, this year. So it, it is uh, it is everything. The interest rate is yeah. everything. And that's just the public markets, right? In the private markets, you've seen some companies like Stripe reduce their valuations internally, but there's probably many more out there. Hussan, thanks so much for that. We're going to continue this discussion and talk about how to play fintech in 2023. Let's bring in D.A. Davidson, Managing Director, Chris Brendler. He names Block and Shift for payments, two of his top picks in the space. Uh, good morning, Chris. Thanks for being with us. Why do you like them going into next year? What's going to separate the winners from the losers in terms of public fintech companies? Uh, thanks for having me, Deidre, and thanks for the question. Um, you know, I think it's certainly a, a, a sea change in, in investor appetite for these names, both on the, on the private side and the public side. Um, profitability is is key. Um, you know, we're not funding uh, ideas anymore. We're funding real businesses. So um, both the companies I'm stocks I'm recommending for next year, um, solidly profitable. I think Square, obviously, a little more of, of a high growth story with um, you know sort of scaling still ahead of it. Um, whereas Shift Four is more of a traditional payments company that's got a lot of growth ahead of it. So yeah, the the, the idea here is to mm -hmm. is to focus on companies that are getting share that have moats around their business and are already profitable. Chris, there was a time not too long ago that some of the fintechs like PayPal and Square or Block Now were actually worth more than some of the big legacy banks. Do we ever get to those kinds of valuations again? And does it turn out that maybe consumer habits are really sticky? I mean, you have savings accounts from the likes of Chase and others offering 0.01% APYs, and yet you're still not seeing this huge move to higher yield neobanks. Yeah, no, I think, um you know, separate the signal from the noise. There, there's a lot of excitement about fintech over the last several years, and and now the pendulum has shifted entirely the other way. Um, but the underlying trend is still there. These companies, they, they, I think, the newer tech platforms uh, offer superior value propositions, ex superior experiences for consumers. So they're still gaining share. It's just that the market's uh, appetite for those stories has has changed dramatically. So I do think that you, uh, a company like Square, or PayPal. Some of the larger players have the potential to be worth more than the traditional financial institutions at some point, but 
valuations have, have changed dramatically. So it's going to be about EBITDA. It's going to be about you know growing profitability, and it's about um, you know sort of keeping your eye on uh, you know more rational decisions rather than growth and any costs. So it, it, we could get there eventually, but this history environment uh, definitely is going to put multiples uh, in a lower level. Hey, Chris, Frank Holland here. Um, I want to touch on Shift 4, one of your other picks here. Not necessarily a household name, but a big upgrade today from Piper, raising its price target to 69. Um, this is a company, as you mentioned, more of a traditional payments player, but its business is really levered to the restaurant and hotel space. Recently, it, it raised its guidance, but we've also seen people spending a lot more money in restaurants and hotels. If we truly see an economic downturn in customers' wallets and pocketbooks being pinched, won't that hurt their business because we won't be seeing people at restaurants the same way and at hotels the same way that we are right now? Yeah, great question, Frank, and certainly one that we're thinking about a lot. We do, we do think we're going to be in a softer economic environment next year, and that certainly factors into our thinking because discretionary spending is a large part of Shift Force business. But remember here, this is much more of a, of a, of a share gain story. You know, back to Deidre's question about traditional fans, solutions, um, Shift Force is gaining share from traditional players like Fiserv and FIS at a rapid rate. They grew they grew volume about 50% over the last five years on a compounded growth rate average, and it even grew volume in 2020 when the restaurant business was entirely shut down. So I, th I view that as a testament to their platform. They offer a superior uh, platform for restaurants, and they're taking share from traditional players that aren't as tech friendly. And um, you know, if you see spending come down 500 basis points or something like that, it's still going to grow 40% plus. So I think that it's more of a share gain uh, story than a macro story for Shift 4. Chris, it seems like for all of these companies that you're bullish on, it's both a share gain story, but also the fact that these stocks are just off so dramatically. I mean, I'm looking at some of the stocks you have a buy on. It includes PayPal as well as a firm. I believe you have, a, yes, a, a buy on a firm there. But just walk us through sort of what you see as being the biggest risks here. I mean, obviously, the shares have come down a lot. But are there areas that you're concerned about or do you think we might even see consolidation in this space? Um, yeah, both good questions. I think I am concerned about valuations. Um, certainly, you know, a couple of years ago, we we're trying to invent new ways of valuing companies like revenue multiples or gross profit multiples. You know, at the end of the day, uh, EBITDA and, and, and cash flow are the most important metrics. And so companies need to be profitable and, and focus on that uh, first and foremost. Um, you know, I think that a company like a firm has a different set of risks. I, I still love that story. I think buy now, pay later is here to stay, or I think we're seeing good results, early results from from what re retailers have reported with buy now, pay later usage this holidays. Consumers love it, retailers love it. It's, it's staying, and I think firm is a winner. The problem is, you know, we're definitely going to see increased defaults across all consumer credit classes in 2023. Uh, so far, the short-term nature of buy now, pay later has proved to be resilient. They can make changes on the fly. And so credit quality has been relatively good, especially at a firm. But you still have that macro headwind makes, makes that a tougher stock to get out in front of right now. So that's why I'm leaning towards more traditional payments, payment players like Shift4. And then Square is in a category by itself. I think for years it was so hard to get you know, a valuation that made sense because it's still scaling so rapidly. There's not a lot of profit growth, but profit growth is coming. And this is the way the Cash App has performed recently. You, you mentioned how the pandemic yeah. you know, sort of accelerated a lot of fintech applications and, and gave us a head fake that this was here to stay. But mm -hmm. the fact that uh, the Cash App is still accelerating, especially in the third quarter, actually re-accelerated their growth rate, even without yeah. stimulus, is a testament to how consumers love this product and it's here to stay. And able to actually monetize. That's something that PayPal has had trouble with, with Venmo. Chris, finally, I want to ask you about one of the biggest and buzziest fintech companies that's actually still private. That's Stripe, right? Really a darling here in the Bay Area. It took a haircut, an internal haircut valuation earlier this year, now worth about $74 billion. 
hasn't missed its window to go public. I mean, the company has never really talked about being all that interested in doing so. But what's the future of this company? Very interesting question. Um, certainly think there was a window to go public, but it's also, I think, one of those things where a payments processor, um, you know, really doesn't need as much capital as, say, a lender like Klarna. I think that's the one that really should have gone public earlier just because it does need outside capital to continue to lend money. Um, Stripe's business is much more profitable, and I consider it much more closer peer to, to Square or Adyen. Um, so I don't know if it necessarily has um, you know, hurt itself significantly. I do know that they've scaled back their growth plans, and they, I think the Collison brothers said that they, you know, grew too fast in terms of their employee count. So I don't think it's necessarily a, a huge negative for Stripe, just given how strong their business model is. But I still expect that company to be public at some point. All right, Chris, great to get your insights. Thank you, and happy holidays. You too, Deirdre. Thanks. Coming up, the First Trust Nasdaq cybersecurity ETF may be down nearly 30% this year. But with ransomware threats on the rise, is there more opportunity ahead? We're back in a moment. Commercial real estate vacancies are on the rise in San Francisco. So what might the tech sector have to do with it? Our own Yasmin Quorum is here on set with the details. I mean, you walk around San Francisco and you know this used to be a bustling area, but tech jobs, as they decline, so does the commercial space here. Yeah, Deirdre, you and I live and work down here, so we see it. We got early look at preliminary numbers by CBRE Research showing that for the 12th straight quarter out here, vacancies for commercial real estate in San Francisco have shot up, now at a record 27.2%. Prior to the pandemic, San Francisco had one of the lowest vacancy rates at just under 4%. That's a big jump. Today, more than a quarter of that city's office space is just sitting here completely empty. While the growing number of zombie buildings and commercial real estate continues to be a nationwide problem, San Francisco is hurting the most among the big cities. And it's because of its historical relationship with tech. That vacancy problem is twofold here. Tech's early embrace of hybrid and remote work culture was the chief catalyst during the early days of the pandemic. But now rising rates and a brutal macroeconomic environment, especially for tech, have caused many of those headquartered here in San Francisco to dramatically cut their workforce and in turn their need for office space. Take a look at this. Now only a third of the city's commercial real estate square footage is leased by tech companies, a number that was 50 percent last year and as high as 75 percent previously. So everyone's wondering, is a recovery ahead? Two interesting data points suggest this is more of a correction on tech spending than an indictment on living in San Francisco. Subleases continue to increase about 8% quarter over quarter, meaning those businesses aren't leaving, but instead downsizing and getting some sort of return on their investment. And that big tech, think Meta, Salesforce, Google, still have more workers employed now than they did pre-pandemic, despite this year's big layoffs. The trick is getting them back into the office. And by the way, guys, if you're looking for that investor impact, this isn't just a long-term trend to watch. There's near-term impact for investors. CBRE is one of the most prolific office REITs with a large presence in San Francisco. That stock down 30% in 2022. But it's just the best of a bad lot, with most of the other big names down at least 40%. All right, Yasmin Corum, thank you very much. We're going to be right back after this break. Much more Tech Check coming up. Lock in your membership now. Join Jim Cramer and the CNBC Investing Club with the special year-end discount. Go to cnbc.com slash club new year 
or scan this code to sign up. NASDAQ holding on to gains this session now up nearly 2.7%. Let's get a gut check on Airbnb. That stock is rebounding today also after hitting all-time lows in yesterday's trade. It is now trading at just around $85 a share, still above that IPO price of $68 a share. Tech Check is back in just a moment. All right, welcome back to Tech Check. Around 770,000 cybersecurity jobs are unfilled here in the U.S., according to the White House, a potentially dangerous shortage in this mission-critical sector. Mandiant says the most serious threats are coming from Russia, described as high tempo and high impact, China, cyber espionage, and Iran, where attacks are described as escalating. Mandiant also forecasting ransomware is being replaced by pure extortion after data theft. But recently, that has not been a tailwind for cyber stocks. They're falling harder than the triple Q ETF that represents the NASDAQ 100 and the SPY that tracks the S&P 500. And while most executives agree cyber protection is a top priority, CEOs of leading cyber firms, including Palo Alto, CrowdStrike, Zscale and Fortinet, they've cited deals taking longer to close and customers scrutinizing their spend more than they ever had before. The biggest trend in this environment is zero trust architecture. It forces users, even in your own network, to validate at every step of a digital interaction. Right now, adoption is at just about 10% for S&P 500 companies. Gartner forecasting 60% adoption by 2025, making this coming year critical for that transition. Wedbush says there's also some M&A on the horizon. Rapid7 and Okta, two cyber stocks, more than 70% off their highs, are possible acquisition targets. Also, Tenable, more than 40% off of its high. Deirdre and Julia. I have to say, go Go ahead, ahead, Deirdre. (laughs) Um, I was just going to say, it seems like cybersecurity is that one thing that people are going to invest in no matter what. And if there's one type of enterprise software that's going to succeed right now, it's going to be that, Deirdre. And just looking at that percentage from 10% to 60%, (laughs) that seems like, and, and just for that category of cybersecurity software, it seems like just the start. Well, this is exactly what I was going to say, Julia, except I was going to take the very opposite view is that, yes, it is necessary. But if you have smaller and mid-sized adoption, right, some of these companies that really have to conserve costs, maybe they're going for a just good enough approach. They're not looking at some of these companies that are best in breed, Frank. What does that mean? for risk. I mean, inevitably, and you're seeing that even CrowdStrike in particular is saying that smaller buyers are scaling back. You know, absolutely. I mean, Deirdre, Andrew, I think you're both right, just on different sides of this. One of the big things right now is people are spending less, is that they want one vendor to provide more services. And that's really gravitating customers towards a Microsoft, yeah. a Salesforce, somebody that can offer you different things for the same price point. Another thing I heard from Microsoft, their chief marketing officer, she said customers are saying to them, don't sell me another product. Show me how to maximize the products I already have. So in this case, that might also be impacting the cybersecurity sector where people are saying, don't bring in something new, even if it is the new thing like zero trust architecture. Show me how to get the most of what you already sold. Me. Right. And so, so maybe that's that good enough approach. And then if you think that some of the smaller or medium sized firms are looking to Microsoft, um, is Microsoft's product getting better? I mean, they're focused on another very, very large acquisition in another space, the gaming space. Do you think that they have the bandwidth to also take on the regulatory implications of acquiring more in the cybersecurity space, Frank? 
You know, great question. After Google acquired Mandiant last year, there was a lot of thought there'd just be a general buying spree when it came to cyber companies and also threat detection companies. We haven't really seen it. In fact, the deal I think we've been talking about the most in Q4 is the acquisition of Coupa being taken private. And that's a supply mm -hmm. chain software company. But 2023, obviously a new year. And if these threats are as serious as Mandiant and others believe from China, Iran, also Korea's in that mix, um, we could see more acquisitions as companies just try to shore up their defenses. And we could definitely see how it makes sense for companies to want to have a one-stop shop in terms of this cybersecurity software. And if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. All right, time now for one more thing. The first legal recreational cannabis dispensary in New York City opens up today. And while cannabis stocks, they had a bit of a rough run with the global cannabis ETF still below its COVID lows. The question is, could this be an opportunity for delivery and fintech companies, Julia? You know, Frank, it's funny because we've been talking about Instacart all week and the fact that its valuation is way down. And I thought, hey, maybe this could be another thing that Instacart could deliver. But then I saw the article in the Wall Street Journal talking about how customers are more judicious about how many things they order D. So we'll see if that holds true for ordering cannabis It's funny as well. to think that the very first one um, is opening up in New York. We have so many here in California, Julia, as you know well. Um, meanwhile, it is the second last trading day of the year and the Nasdaq up a strong two and three quarters of one percent. You've still got Tesla holding on to strong gains of more than eight percent. Um, what's going to happen next year? This is the question on everyone's mind, guys. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.